Welcome to the Meta View Podcast. Hear these non-fungible conversations. They will yield you great knowledge and perspective. But beware, they might also make your brain go boom. So watch your step, because this rabbit hole goes deep. Good luck and have fun. Welcome, blockchain socialist. Hey. One of my favorite uh, crypto Twitter accounts because you talk about things that uh, yeah, other crypto accounts don't talk about so often. And I think uh, yeah, listeners of this podcast have heard this one too many times about how I got into crypto. But yeah, what I wanted to mention is just how like when I first got into crypto, I thought that like everybody was coming from this sort of uh, like post-capitalist perspective like I came from researching like uh, research-based economy eco-villages and that sort of things and then finding crypto and thinking oh like this is how we do this and I thought like everybody is in crypto coming from that similar perspective only to then like realize that like most of the people or at least most of the early people in the Bitcoin space are actually like uh, anarcho libertarians <laughs> and that was kind of a, a disappointing moment for me to realize like a lot of people see the blockchain as just uh, like hyper capitalism not post capitalism <laughs> yeah they see it as um the most pure form of capitalism you can find <laughs> right and then there are yeah other people on this side and i was happy to find you and uh, yeah for a long time i was not really involved while I was in crypto space and then I found some people who are like talking about this sort of thing and you are one of those people and I thought it would be it would be important to get you on here yeah thanks for having me uh do you want to yeah give a, a brief intro how how you came up with this whole a blockchain socialist uh, uh persona or the brand and yeah the podcast and everything <laughs> I think it's funny people people like it. I mean, when I was in Amsterdam, you know, a couple, I think one person said like, you're, you're building like a brand. And I'm like, really? Am I? <laughs> I'm not really trying to. <laughs> but um, I mean, yeah, it started, I started two and a half-ish years ago, mostly just being like, I had been working in the blockchain space for a while and been interested in it for a long time and sort of like dabbling in sort of playing around with, at the time, what were like the early Ethereum, like developer tools and like starting up my own node and like playing with solidity and things like this as a way to just get my hands dirty because I sort of was interested in Ethereum at the time because I viewed it as like you said kind of like this potential for post-capitalism even though there was I mean I was very aware of the sort of dominance of libertarian and like sort of right-wing thinking I just had this like feeling in my gut that like what they were saying wasn't exactly correct and sort of I decided to play with all this stuff directly in order to get like a good feel for it and just went along with it for a long time being interested in it and then I was really disappointed over time the sort of lack of good uh, I felt good left-wing analysis on the crypto space there were some like academics who had some good stuff to say but like really not in, ter in terms of like the popular like media sphere. I had to sort of like really, really dig to find anything that I thought was any good. Uh, maybe because 
I think partially because I, I worked in it and I, I worked very closely with it, whereas most of the sort of like left-wing analyses were largely critiques from like a point of view that I, like it wasn't like the, my point of view, so it didn't really speak to me. And so after being frustrated for a long time, I spent a weekend, I paid like, you know, 200 uh, bucks or something like that on a, on a, on a website and like just came up with a name. I knew I want to talk about blockchain. I want to talk about socialism. And so like, this is the name that I came up with. And at the time I was like, I'll change it eventually because this is kind of cringe, but then I never changed it. Uh, And then that's I'm kind of stuck with it. So I still cringe every time I look at it, but you know, it is what it is. And then I just started writing, just starting off as a blog, like sort of my, a lot of my first thoughts about it. And I first started with like a blockchain 101 for socialists. So trying to explain it from a socialist point of view, like to help make those types of connections on what blockchain is uh, from that point of view. And then sort of expanding into like different analyses and then eventually a podcast. And then, yeah, where I am today, where I've just basically been doing most of this stuff, like from my bedroom. (laughs) And somehow some people like what I tweet. (laughs) (laughs) In the recording documentary, we have to, you know, we have to shield it, even though it's not out yet. Yeah, so the documentary, it's called, uh, so it's, it's nothing has come out yet. Uh, we're planning to publish the teaser hopefully in like the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, we just have to finish the website, but it's called Crypto Futures. It's like uh, the, the Twitter handle is at underscore Crypto Futures. And so this is something where uh, it sort of happened kind of by chance where you know, I mean, I met you, Peith, at the Crypto Commons gathering, and that's also where I met my film partner. He had wanted to uh, make a film about the Crypto Commons gathering, potentially, in like that space, but he didn't have like the knowledge about blockchain, really. He just sort of was friends with the organizers, and so he needed someone to be a host. And since I was there, he thought I could be a good person to do it. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? I never, I never really ever, ever thought in my entire life I would ever make a documentary or anything like that. I just never really had that idea in my head. But the opportunity came up and I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And so we started at the CCG, mostly doing interviews with people there that I then turned into podcasts. So the interview with you on the podcast is uh, under the CCG Chronicles. So just sort of archiving the different discussions that were had at the CCG, uh, because I think there are, I think... What's important about them is that they're very, very different types of conversations, of course, than what you have at other types of crypto conferences. And, you know, it, it, I think for people who are from the outside would be very surprised by the types of conversations that we had at the CCG because it was the most, uh, for me, it was, it's like the best, one of the best crypto conferences I've ever been to in my life. It was, of course, it was much, much smaller, much smaller, much more intimate. So like you're, it's much easier to like, make friends with people who maybe you don't agree with like a hundred percent on everything, but like, at least you can have like a, a beer afterwards and, you know, have fun. And I think that helps open up people to like, maybe some of the ideas that you were, that you were talking about rather than sort of like this standard, like Twitter persona. So like, I mean, like I realize I have a certain Twitter persona not everybody may like my Twitter persona, but you know, I'm not my Twitter persona in real life. And so being able to meet me in real life, I think sort of changes that dynamic. And so, yeah, we recorded at the CCG and then we've sort of, since then, we decided to expand the scope of the documentary to film at different conferences throughout the crypto world in order to break down 
this tendency for people to paint the crypto world with one big brush. So, you know, we went to the Crypto Commons gathering, which was already by far like very different than any sort of crypto conference you can go to. We went to a conference called the Miami Crypto Experience, which is like very, very mainstream crypto conference. It was like, for me, it was like emotionally draining, like having to having to be there. But it was really good film, <laughs> like like the type of people who just like love to be on camera. They love to do like the dumbest shit. You know, they don't really care. So it was very fun <laughs> in that perspective. Uh, but talking to them, I mean, they just have very different ideas about crypto than I do. But that that's important, I think, showing like how different like people's visions about crypto on the future are, because then we can break down sort of like this tendency to say like, oh, the crypto space is this. When in reality, I think there is no crypto space. There is no like one thing or one way that you can sort of describe the like the entirety of the space. And so by, I think, showing these different spaces within the crypto world, we can sort of begin to show people uh, the differences between it and also give like a call to action to people who watch it. Because we're going to show you, you know, the way that people think in Miami versus the way that people think in the crypto commons gathering versus the way that people think at the Taoist events that we were at in Amsterdam and Lisbon. And therefore they can make a choice on which type of future they want to support when it comes to this new technology. Because I think whenever the internet and sort of, you know, if you want to call it Web2 platform sort of came about, it was never presented as a choice. Usually when new technologies are created, they're sort of like thrusted upon us and, being, and you know, Silicon Valley is sort of like, this is the new world now, you need to like sort of conform to it. And, you know, they were very successful in that. Especially, I mean, just the, the introduction of smartphones, like I remember, is just like, insane how quickly it came about and just completely changed how we thought about it and how we just like interacted with one another because now we could you know had instant communication with anyone that we wanted at any moment in time uh, where it wasn't like that before and we never asked ourselves is this what we want is that is that sort of the thing that we're going for here so yeah so the point is to hopefully distinguish what the different futures are and make it a call to action for viewers to um, make a choice on which one they want to support. Yeah, we also come to realize like how much depends on uh, the person's background, like the way that you should explain crypto to them. Why should it matter to them? As you said, like it's completely, it's going to get explained completely differently by somebody at like CCG versus someone at uh, Bitcoin Miami or whatever <laughs> Miami with like the, the most crypto bro conference. Yeah, for sure. I think that's. By and large, because of the mental models that were used in the very beginning of crypto, which were largely, you know, very right-wing libertarian, very like free market fundamentalist, those type of models have sort of just been carried over as kind of like the default way that people explain things. And that doesn't work for everyone, or it sounds like very dystopian to a lot of people, uh, which I think, you know, it makes some sense why. But at the same time, my thing and my project is sort of trying to break down what sort of these different mental models about crypto are and like breaking it down to its pieces so that we I can show that the way that libertarians are tending to explain this stuff is not 
it's not exactly correct. It's like they may be, they may have been the first ones. They may have been the ones that were like most invested in this type of project. Uh, but I think they don't really know what they created, or they had they had theoretically, you know, what they thought that they created. Uh, but in practice, I think it's a bit different than what they think. And I think a lot of the critics tend to just take for granted what the libertarians say about crypto and then say that it's wrong and therefore it's a scam. Whereas I think my position is more like, yes, they are wrong, but it also doesn't matter. Because, for example, like when people say crypto is money or code is law, it's easy to say like, no, those things are wrong. And I think, yes, those those ideas are wrong. Like crypto is not money, code is not law. But that's also a good thing. It's a good thing that those are different. And it's a good thing that we don't like try to impose those like mental models onto this new thing, because then that would limit us in thinking about how we use crypto and how we use blockchain for more, well, for different goals and what like a right-wing libertarian wants. You're right. What do you think are some of the like biggest criticism that you previously heard uh, from the left? You said that there were some uh, very, very, very rare that you even saw anybody from the left talking about crypto. Yeah. But it was like a criticism and not the kind that you agreed with. Yeah. I mean, it tended to be like these types of that, you know, uh, that crypto is not money because X, Y, Z or like, especially Bitcoin. I mean, that was like really the, the focus in, in the beginning, like left wing critiques go only in the last couple of years. Was Ethereum ever mentioned or smart contracts ever mentioned? Or if smart contracts were mentioned, it was in passing. Usually the, the focus was on Bitcoin for a very long time, even past the point whenever Bitcoin was like all that. I mean, it was relevant, but it wasn't like the only game in town. Uh, so it tended to be that like, oh, you know, the, the gold bug mentality of Bitcoin is like bad and that this limited sort of deflationary uh, issuance is sort of like a right wing ideal that favors creditors over over debtors which is true i think i agree with that but i think what is sort of missing or like what they tended to just not consider because they didn't really look they looked at the surface they looked at the characterization of bitcoin and not sort of the underlying technical structure and i it's not that sounds to someone who is like a critic they'll be like oh you know you just want me to like you know, dig deeper and deeper until I find something good that I like. But no, I think the point is that there is a certain level of understanding and a certain level of, you know, familiarity with the way these technical structures work that you have to sort of get into if you want to be able to make the types of critiques that would make someone who works in crypto actually think twice. Because I'm not against critique or anything like that. I just don't think the types of critiques that they were really giving were really anything that, you know, if you're a Solidity developer or anything like that, and, and during this time, you would have given a shit because it doesn't speak to you. So like, you know, focusing on this limited issuance type of thing was kind of ridiculous whenever it's just like a variable in the code that you can change, you know, as you want. Yeah, and it's just Bitcoin, just this yeah. first and single cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this tendency, or there there was, I think it's changing a bit now, but there was this tendency for people to want every single crypto to be deflationary. And that was a way that you 
got the price to go up or like you had some assurance thinking that the price was going to go up over time. And that's why you invested in like the cryptocurrency. And I think that was kind of like a, that is a something that came out of the fact that only libertarians, only gold bugs were sort of there in the beginning. And they sort of set this cultural standard for projects to be deflationary. Whereas I think had there been more sort of like, you know, people who are more critical of capitalism, I think that that could have been different. Right. Like even, even in Ethereum, like deflationary after proof of stake and Ethereum was already like, it's already like a, a less libertarian spirit than Bitcoin and yeah, going in similar direction. I was uh, a little bit disappointed with that, with that decision. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it works. I mean, I think that, uh, it, yeah, there there could be issues with it. But let's see. Yeah, I mean, it's all about uh, these. Not all about these different currencies, but like, yeah, I mean, community can have its own token and do whatever with it. But I think it ultimately doesn't matter, like what this sort of hub chain wants to do. Although, yeah, it's kind of, uh, yeah, reproducing the same sort of pattern mm-hmm. as the, the old kind of system where the rich just get richer although you also kind of can't avoid that without fucking up some of the incentives yeah i mean we have a it's a very difficult issue like if you are a, if you want to be a post-capitalist in, in blockchain world um, you sort of have to deal with the realities of right now of <laughs> currently existing capitalism while also trying to nudge the world into like a different space. It's not easy. I mean, clearly not an easy thing to do. So what's uh, what's your hope in it? How do you see this uh, working out? Or do you see this working out? By this, you mean just mean crypto in general? Uh, no, I mean, crypto in general seems to be progressing, but like uh, in terms of like having it move in a, at least a little bit uh, different direction, than this sort of uh, hyper-capitalism where it seems to be going. Yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 I'm bad at, at making predictions about the future, but I think that if we are to stay in this, like, hyper-capitalist and, like, financialized mindsets overall in crypto, which I think it's going to continue just because people want to make fucking money, but I think what it's going to cause is what you see with, you know, the Terra... Luna situation where just like collapse after, you know, catastrophe after catastrophe, crisis after crisis is going to continue to happen over time. We're going to have these quite like volatile uh, boom and bust cycles. And that is sort of par for the course as far as capitalism goes. And I think over time, there's going to be people who are saying like, this is, this is ridiculous. We can't keep doing this. We need to like be more, um, you know, vigilant in how we do this. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not people are successful in being able to convince others to not conform to these like more risky practices in terms of currency and like token design. Because like clearly, I don't know, at the moment it seems like algorithmic stables just like don't seem like something that is really that possible or is like, it's just like extremely risky as, as they keep doing it. So I think there's probably going to be some kind of effect, or I hope there is some kind of effect there. Either people are, they finally fucking learn that what the issues are, but at the same time, there's always like new people who come into crypto who don't know 
like anything about the history or anything about like even what they're investing in. Um, so that's that's an issue. There could be, I think, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether regulation changes. What I'm like more interested in or like what my project is more interested in, I think, is trying to speak to the people who are at the forefront of building all of these things to help them sort of think through, you know, what are the like political economic like consequences of the things that they're building uh, and whether or not there are ways in which they can build them that are more, well, let's say progressive minded or like just not so just taking as a fact or taken as a, as just like a default of like trying to make the most free markets as possible um, or the most, uh, you know, capitalistic things as possible. Because I think just there is going to be over and over again, these booms and busts and over time, that is going to worsen inequality in terms of like the cryptocurrency space because what always happens is whenever there's a bust, the people who are wealthy tend to survive it. They buy up all the cheap commodities or, or tokens that they can find and then they're richer by the next boom cycle. Um, so I think that's going to, it's going to like burn a lot of people out in that. Just like a matter of time to see whether regulation comes in, whether it's, and whether it's successful to be honest or whether people just like learn to be more vigilant in, in what they get involved in. And so I think what I want to do is mostly just try to share these types of ideas, these like explicitly socialist ideas into these people who are building so that they can have sort of an alternative mental model for the things that they're building and maybe think twice or to build something completely different. So I hope to honestly just like have some influence in, in that direction. Right. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the, the whole Terra Luna stuff. I think that <laughs> likely to have big consequences. It already had like pretty solid consequences in the crypto space. I hope there won't be any blanket uh, regulations that fuck us all over. Uh, <laughs> I just want I wanted to say, uh, yeah, the, like the part of crypto that seems to be vibing with these sort of ideas the most is the DAO space, right? Like where it's yeah a lot about this sort of community ownership and uh, people owning the factories and that sort of thing. Do you want to talk a bit about that? And the, the little known uh, anarcho-syndicalism that should be a better known political philosophy. Yeah, for sure. I think, so one of the things, because, you know, people... Especially if you come from, I don't know, maybe a lot of Western countries like the US or whatever else, you may have like a particular idea of what socialism is and that the only idea is really maybe like the Soviet model. And then, you know, then that, that gets paired with like, you know, everything is super centralized, everything is super like authoritarian in some way. Well, I don't, I don't want to go into like that rabbit hole, but I think what I want to do especially is try to expose sort of like these different alternative socialist ideas and models that maybe people don't get exposed to. So things like anarcho-syndicalism, which has like a very interesting history and has like, in my opinion, a lot of relevance for DAOs. So I wrote, I wrote this piece that you're kind of referring to on Mirror called DAOs, uh, Anarcho-Syndicalism in a Digital World, where basically I go through the history of anarcho-syndicalism in Spain so people don't know this or may not know this, but Spain had a civil war in like right before World War II. 
They had a civil war between the fascists, who were like the pro-monarchist, hyper-Catholic like group that were supported by the Nazis and by fascist Italy. Uh, and then on the other side, you had the Republicans, who were people trying to yeah, push Spain into like a Republican form of government, reduce the power of the monarchy. And they were sort of allied with the uh, communists and the anarchists or anarcho-syndicalists. And anarcho-syndicalism is basically the idea that workers should unionize to the point to where they can take over the places of work. So usually in this time, this was about factories. This is where most people kind of worked at this time. They should own the factories themselves and put it under worker control and then sort of like develop society from that base. So like creating workers' councils that then provide the like political base for for like a a new country or for like a new political system. And so these were also, these were people who were fighting in the front lines of the civil war against the monarchists, against the fascists. Unfortunately, the, the fascists won uh, and Spain was under a fascist dictatorship for several decades. Uh, and only in like, I, I believe it was the seventies, did they get out of their fascist dictatorship. But the legacy of the anarcho-syndicalists are very strong. And I think what is really interesting about the anarcho-syndicalists like theory is that there's a lot of similarities, I think, for why people are interested in DAOs. So like my main kind of thesis is that the concept of DAOs, they represent a potential to decentralize one of the most centralized aspects of our lives. And that is the workplace. If you are a working class person, then you have to sell your labor in order to make enough money to make ends meet uh, so you can continue to survive paying rent or housing or food or whatever else. And that is something that people are really, really looking to get out of. People really hate that. Whether or not you're a socialist or not, you've probably had the feeling of like, fuck work, you know? And so I think anarcho-syndicalism is this sort of historical concept that matches very well with that and like sort of the... By unionizing and controlling the workplace, you are also decentralizing the ownership of that workplace. Sometimes I think people who have drank like sort of like the Red Scare type of Kool-Aid, they tend to think that like, oh, unions are sort of like this, you know, giant centralizing corrupt forces that, uh, you know, prevent me from like being able to make more money than my coworkers. But in reality, that's not the case all the time. Yes, there are situations in which there are really bad unions and there are really bad union leaders who are instilled basically by the management of the company in order to have control over the union or their, you know, what's really famous in at least the United States throughout the like 20s and 30s was like the mass banishment of anyone who was a communist in unions in the United States were all kicked out of unions. Um, they were not allowed to to take part. They, there's like a conscious effort by the government uh, with the help of the corporations that owned or who you know had unions in their workforce to get rid of the communists, to sort of de-radicalize the unions uh, and make them into sort of controlled opposition. Uh, so yeah, there's, you know, sometimes that, that does happen and that's sort of like a failure. That That is like a, a consequence of like political struggle. But I think anarcho-syndicalism is a much more like radical idea about unions and using that to to control the workplace, which I think is like the reason why people want to be in DAOs is because they want more control and they want more of their own autonomy when it comes to their work. That's why I think it's called decentralized autonomous organization. Or like those, those are the ways that I, that I think people 
are sort of projecting the word decentralized and autonomous when it comes to a DAO, because sometimes those words get thrown a lot and like without very much meaning. But yeah, so I think this idea is something that is not super well known, but is super relevant for the, the DAO space. I agree. I think yeah, a lot of the people in the DAO space would very much like this this sort of thinking. And uh, I, I know that like I talked to some people who were in the DAO space who were like, oh, like this is the first time ever that we are building companies that aren't centralized and that are owned by the community. No, it's not. <laughs> it's just, we just now have this really cool technology to do that, but like decentralized organizations existed uh, for pretty much as long as human societies. I think you could probably even make the arguments that like, you know, decentralized organization was the default of humans for, you know, millennia. And then there was a certain time where like centralized, at least, I mean, you had like feudalism where they introduced monarchies and there's a certain centralized hierarchy to that. But then when it comes to like companies, centralized corporations, that was something that had to be taught to people over, you know, decades or centuries. Um, so it was not something that people did willingly. Uh, you have the history of the enclosure of the commons in the UK where, you know, all of these royalty or super rich people were explicitly given like private property over land that was considered the commons by the local peoples of that area. So like all these serfs or like just people who worked the lands to make a living or to like make to basically to eat the food, they were all kicked off the land. The land was given to these uh, wealthy barons and then they would build factories on that land. And then all of the displaced people who were farming it had now, they had no other choice but to become workers for that factory. And it was like a very violent process, uh, how that happened. And so like, it's a fairly, like when you, if you look back at the history of humanity, it's like a very, it's a fairly new thing. The fact that we live under these very centralized and hierarchical systems of, of control via the workplace. We, we kind of take it for granted now as that sort of being the default. But if you take a, a longer perspective, it's actually quite new. Um, and it is something that, I mean, clearly people are, are trying to push back against. People did that through creating unions and trying to fight back against uh, through worker, like collectivizing worker power. And then now we see this in DAOs where I think a lot of people come from like maybe they used to work in like tech or like consulting or like nice jobs who before generally, you know, they didn't have unions or they don't, they, they don't really think about being in a union because they have like well-paying jobs, but they still probably have this feeling of wanting to decentralize their place of work. And so they've come to DAOs thinking that it's like a new thing. And then when they come to DAOs, they're like, oh shit, what are cooperatives? Oh, these have existed for like centuries. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> so I think it's it's interesting how people are learning these these new things over time. No, how how was it justified in the UK? Like in the US, like this whole disappearance of the of the unions was kind of fueled with uh, by the Red Scare, like the whole uh, Cold War and the fear of uh, communism and uh, Russia. But how did it? Yeah. What was it like in the UK when they just started <laughs> closing? Uh, yeah, I mean, just largely very violent, <laughs> as far as I understand. I mean, you have to imagine people living in these, vi in these villages, you know, having worked the land for 
centuries or for however long. And then all of a sudden, you know, some Lord comes in and with their knights and say like, this is mine now because the Royal family has given it to me through this, you know, declaration on this piece of paper. So, I mean, it was usually beat down by violence, get them off the land and so that they could own it. And then of course, like there's always this process of like, okay, the people who are, some of these people are, uh, get hired into being like slightly higher positions than the rest of the, than the rest of the peasants. And so then they get like special privileges and then that helps enforce like the power of, of the Lord that takes over the land. And, you know, they have the, the power of violence behind them through their knights or whatever. I mean, as far as the enclosure of the commons, that's how I understand it as happening. And then, yeah, in, in, I mean, in the, in the U.S., people really, really forget that like communists were like hunted. <laughs> I mean, they were like, uh, you know, they were killed a lot of the time or just like, you know, assassinated or, or disappeared or wherever else in order to like break the growing socialist or communist movement at the time because it was like a threat to, you know, the powers of those who owned all these giant corporations. And then I think, you know, in, in the UK, they did have like this pretty strong culture of, of unions and like labor power. But then I think uh, with like Margaret Thatcher and the rise of neoliberalism, it sort of, it killed it a lot. And I think it's similar in the US, you know, where you have states basically where it's technically illegal to make a union or it's illegal to go on strike. So I mean, I think it's just been like this, it's been this struggle back and forth of different classes who have different interests. And one of those classes being the capitalists are sort of, so far have been winning quite a lot. Right. I want to get a bit into like this, uh... I guess difference between like uh, anarcho-syndicalism or like anarcho-communism or anarcho-libertarianism. One of the main differences between uh, com- anarcho-communism and anarcho-syndicalism is this uh, fact that anarcho-syndicalists they don't like uh, capitalism, but they also don't like governments. Like they don't they don't like the state. Yeah, they don't like the state for sure. <laughs> But then, uh, my, like in the beginning, when I first discovered it, I thought that it's more similar to anarcho-communism. But I would say that it might even be more similar to anarcho-libertarianism, in that like the factory is owned by the workers, but it's still like a, a factory that's like meant to produce profit, right? And like operate in a free market kind of. I th- think that it depends on the level of like development i do think that like i think that really what distinguishes anarcho-syndicalism is that it's a particular theory about creating change at the same time as being sort of like a a philosophical thing in the sense they're really like make a union take over the workplace and start from there whereas you know plenty of other strands of socialism or or communism or whatever else or anarchism will have different ideas about where to start. Anarcho-syndicalism is really saying, let's start at creating unions and making very radical unions that take over the workplace and then using that as a basis for creating political change. I think there is, so syndicalism is a general sort of like theory and practice that can be left-wing or right-wing. So anarcho-syndicalism being sort of like the left-wing version of that, there is sort of like a basically a more fascist version of that, a right-wing, like a conservative syndicalism or I forget what it's called, but basically where they say, let's make a union for like the glory of the country and like 
you know, very blood and soil type of fascist kind of links. Whereas you're making a union not to take over the workplace, you're actually using it as a way to help capitalists. Whereas anarcho-syndicalism is saying, you know, you should take over and remove the capitalist. But I think whenever that does happen, if that happens at a particular level, what you see in like, especially in Spain, like the purpose of developing or of like producing the commodities of these factories that they were doing was not really about producing a profit. I think, you know, it may be like a special case because at the time, it's not like there was like very much of a centralized financial system. It wasn't like that making a profit really made a whole lot of sense whenever you're in the middle of a, of a war. So like they were not so worried about making a profit, I think. I think there are probably, you know, differences inside of people who were anarcho-syndicalists and they're like, no, you know, people who are more said that they needed to make a profit in order to like do X, Y, Z or whatever else. Like, I don't think there was like a necessarily like clear singular belief on, on that part because, I mean, eventually... Like there were a lot of divisions inside of the uh, anarcho-syndicalists and between the communists and between with the Republicans, which ultimately led to their loss in the Civil War. But I think it's interesting that, you know, like it is very funny that people who were maybe originally right-wing libertarians came to Dow's in the first place. Because if you remember, like back in the day, the way that Dow's were first explained, first they were called decentralized autonomous corporations. and they were explained i remember the example that was used every time was like imagine uber except without the uber like the 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 drivers own uber and like i'm like well what you're describing is essentially a cooperative which generally i mean i don't know if libertarians have that strong of a feeling against cooperatives but they're coming to like this position that it is actually better for workers to own the company rather than it is the like a single person or whatever, which is very funny. <laughs> right. But you know, like my, my concern is like how to prevent these sort of organizations from doing the same thing that the, the capitalists do, because the capitalist might not be specifically like the, the owner of the factory as much as the factory itself or like the organization itself. Like if it's, I guess it depends on how it's said from the beginning. If you set it up as like, okay, we're going to, be like a triple bottom line sort of business. Like we're not going to be all about the profit and you stick to that and it's good. But like, yeah, how to ensure that over the long run, these like community owned uh, factories don't turn out as much as about profit extraction. And like if you had like a yeah d- driver owned uh, Uber and it had a monopoly, like how do we, how do you stop it from being as extractive? Yeah, it's about, I mean, in, in crypto world, you would call it governance, whereas in maybe like socialist world, people will call it uh, social relationships. So like it depends on how are people like connecting with one another and relating to one another through production, like through through the work that you're doing. How are you related to your, you know, coworker? How are you related to someone else who works in a different industry? I think the point of, with anarcho-syndicalism at least, is, was to create these worker councils of different industries. And by having this sort of pluralism of like representation of different industries, you can sort of add like checks and balances between them so that one isn't sort of like making a shit ton of profit or something like that than, than, than the other one and sort of dominating through that. So I think it's definitely like not enough 
I think, to just turn every company into a cooperative, because then you still have, I think the point is to actually get rid of the profit motive, at least in, in the way that we think of it today, because the profit motive is ultimately what leads to these sort of concentrations of power and wealth. So I think being able to get past that via like forms of governance that are more democratic and that like have checks and balances between these different actors um, is one of the ways to to try and do that. And so I think when we're talking about blockchain specifically, or I mean, with the use of smart contracts, you know, you, you can encode these types of principles into your smart contracts in particular ways. That could be really interesting. That could be really helpful for moving people into, into that direction. Makes sense. My main fear actually with DAOs is uh, it's not that at all. It's like the the, the token voting itself, like uh, being prone to capture by whales and centralization. And like it's, you can't really get a, a worker-owned factory if it's like to token governed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, a lot of the like people in the DAO space are all about like everybody's talking. Oh, this like it's like co cooperatives. DAOs are like democratic organizations, and uh, everybody's talking about that. But on like in practice, you see like most DAOs are more like yeah, token token weighted voting, where they have like teams who are like autonomous and like they have freedom. They like request a grant, and they are like, free to like work to decide how they work and all of that. But the the central part of the organization is still like controlled by capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I think token governance, pure token governance is a product of like the lack of imagination in the crypto world. Because I mean, it's specifically sort of like these first libertarian type of ideas. I mean, it just, it looks exactly like stock markets. And that is basically the creation of, you know, the world that we already live in before that we were so mad about and, mad and wanted to be against in the beginning. So like, yeah, when you, when you are able to purchase governance at the proportion at which you own capital or own money or whatever else, then like you're creating systems of plutocracy. And if you want to be radical and you want to make something different, then you have to create different systems and feedback loops to to create that world yeah, yeah. my hope is that it's not just uh, i mean it's, yeah obviously not just uh, the lack of imagination but also lack of proper civil resistance and i hope that like once that problem is solved that we will see a lot more DAOs that are acting more democratically than what we have currently yeah and i like some of the hybrid models as well or like in the the Moloch DAOs, the DAO house DAOs, where you have to, you can put your stake, but you don't necessarily get, uh, you get the loot shares, which are non-voting shares. And you can like own a big chunk of uh, the organization by infusing capital, but you don't necessarily get to vote. I think that's, that's cool as well. Mm, yeah. All right. Uh, we're 50 minutes in. I'm not sure. I think we covered most of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Well, I mean, I'm, I, I'm curious about uh, like your thoughts on, I mean, do you think that civil resistance on one side, I think people want to solve it. On the other side, 
I wonder if we even have to solve it completely or that we will ever be able to solve it completely. But that's, it's, that because like if you look at, I don't know, if you look at Gitcoin or something like that, they have uh, an interesting system of like, basically like you, you can choose the amount of non non civil you are i guess <laughs> or like how a, a type of confidence in which you are like a, a single person uh which i think is like an interesting approach and therefore by being being more confident means that you get like more quadratic funding matching and things like that but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because i know metagame as well you guys have like a need for for civil resistance as well yeah we're one of the rare democratic DAOs where actually one person needs one vote uh but yeah like uh gitcoin and gitcoin they're spending a lot of time and a lot of money trying to solve this problem and uh, i think it's yeah, this is cool like having this sort of degree of certainty about whether someone is a single person or a, a civil but also like yeah if you know if you know what kind of things that they're looking out for you can still game the system it was just take more effort and I guess that's kind of the that's kind of their point because at some point like if they make it uh, make you jump through so many hoops then it's at some point it's no longer worth it to <laughs> try to cheat the system right you'd have to make like very 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 good like bot scripts or something like that to, to get through all of it I like it better than like the Proof of Humanity, is it Proof of Humanity? I think it's Proof of Humanity. I haven't heard about it in a while, but... Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it, <laughs> to be honest. I liked it because I, I thought it, it does some, like, <laughs> anonymity preservation. But then, the, not really the case. Not really the case. Yeah, like it's... Um... It's only halfway to the... To the sphere, what was the sphere called? I can't remember. But you know the the Silicon Valley <laughs> sphere that they made, which like takes uh, the the world world coin or something. The 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 world coin. Yeah, just like, give us give us your retina scan, and <laughs> you get twenty cents a day or something. <laughs> uh, so dystopian. Yeah, they wanted to make it a a basic income, but it just doesn't seem worth it yeah i mean i think uh, personally i feel we'll probably need some type of basic income at some point but i also feel that there's almost like too much focus on basic income to a certain extent and that i think we could I know, instead of using universal basic income to have universal basic services like why not just create the systems to where you don't have to pay for most of these things in the first place so then you don't need the type of income um, that you would need. And so like, you know, universal healthcare is a universal basic service. If you would just like provide everyone a, a home and provide everyone like a minimum amount of food or whatever, I think we could sort of avoid a lot of this universal basic income stuff. People want to do universal basic income because it's it feels easier, I think. You know, you just have to like, drop people a couple of bits that represent some type of token that maybe equals some type of money. Um, so it's something that like Silicon Valley feels like they can do. But if I can get most of my things without relying on having to, to, to make so much money, 
then I think we're we're moving towards a a better place through that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I used to be a big fan of basic income, but like, first of all, I think there's still so much work that uh, like, at least in the in the DAO space, it's like we are not at a point where so many jobs have been automated that you like really actually need to be giving people money for because there's not enough jobs to go around. But yeah, I also like this idea of having free services better than just uh, dropping money. Like in Croatia, we have the free schooling system, the universities, I think, as well, the medical care as well. Although in some cases, you might die while you're still in queue <laughs> waiting for your treatment. <laughs> so that's kind of shit. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, I think I feel like that's that's more of a it's a function or like it's like a solvable problem. I feel like that type of thing. I think sometimes because like I guess if you compare it to the U.S., it's sort of like well, you can get it if you will either want to be completely broke afterwards or if you're already rich. It's like there's a very strong correlation with how wealthy you are and like how long you get to live, which is quite like sad. But I mean. I, I don't know how much like for you because I mean Yugoslavia did have and this this will lead to our conversation about <laughs> starting Yugoslav DAO <laughs> <laughs> but because um, Yugoslavia did have a lot of these type of universal basic services at least at one point and then you know there's a lot of them are sort of gone now yeah yeah at that time like uh, most things were like a lot of these services were free and then like other things were cheap although the problem was more so in the supply so we'd have like oh the gas is uh, super cheap but you only get to drive like two days a week <laughs> shit like that like you have to you can depending on what's your registration plate you can only go to the gas station on certain days or like shelves in the market were not really were like lacking basic shit. It was like everything was super cheap, but uh, you might not find the shit to buy. And that, th those were the problems. And uh, now there's yeah a lot of uh, uh, still a lot, a lot of free services. But yeah, I, yeah. The main problem I think ended up being like the corruption in the system itself, which is yeah the the problem with centralization. And then you had this this line between the people who work for the government services, who had like, oh, they would get uh, a lot of free things and uh, the the apartments that they were that that were being given and shit like that. And then the people who were like trying to uh, run uh, smaller businesses or like uh, work on their own, like freelance, it was a lot harder than working for the government, which is, which was just getting more bloated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there was a like the the whole decommunization of of Yugoslavia was quite and it was quite brutal. Ah uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was taken apart. I think we actually talked about it at CCG the the weight of chains documentary about like the the fall of Yugoslavia and how it was kind of uh, ushered through by the free market forces and how they like uh, bombed the things like the or like near things like the the tobacco factory and other shit that were like not really important for the war, but they did it anyway. And then U.S. companies bought uh, factories for like <laughs> super cheap. Yeah, shit like that. 
Yeah, yeah. Seems like US did a, a lot of that sort of thing around the world, like freeing, <laughs> freeing countries <laughs> from their oppressive governments. We're bringing yeah. democracy by bombing your factories and then buying it for cheap. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> Freedom bombs. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's fucked up. I mean, yeah, I had a like Yugoslavia is something that I really wish still existed because or, or like I wish it was paid attention a little bit more when it came to like how people think about the history of socialism that it's not so simple that people sort of like they just immediately go to like the Soviet model or something like that whenever the, the Yugoslav model was, was a bit different of course it did also have its issues just like every system has its own issues but I think it knowing that like Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union were not like they were not best friends and <laughs> they were not aligned with one another. Yugoslavia was sort of like outside of the realm of, of like Soviet influence to a certain degree. Yeah. Building our own uh, union, the, the League of Unlisted or something like that was called. Like the countries that we didn't want to unalign, <laughs> that, yeah, that wouldn't uh, fall under the, the USSR, but neither the, the other side. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah. I, and I think, you know, having, creating something like a Yugoslav DAO as a way to sort of, you know, on one side, I think it'd be really interesting to use it as a vehicle for uh, explaining Yugoslavia or like sharing, getting people to know more about Yugoslavia as like a, a different socialist model, but then like also sort of understanding the issues that it had. And then while also, you know, kind of LARPing a, a new Yugoslavia, which is like, you know, th that is more, let's say, decentralized than maybe it was before, I think would be like a super fun project. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was, uh, seemed to be one of the best going experiments in that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, like maybe it would all go to shit very soon either way. It seemed to be one of the most successful experiments for sure. And it's definitely worth learning from. And I think... That part scares scared the U.S. likely because I know that. I mean, there there is pretty good evidence that like you know the U.S. funded a lot of these like right wing, you know, nationalist movements within Yugoslavia and like after after the war they they gave they just like funneled a shit ton of money to like the most you know nationalistic groups that they could find. It was always like a as far as I understand, you know, there were always these ethnic differences in Yugoslavia. They were able to get over it for for a few decades while. The country existed and then eventually i don't know there i guess the us was able to take advantage of certain divisions to and pump money in certain directions and weapons in certain directions in order to facilitate the breakup let's say yeah yeah the differences really didn't uh, seem to matter until up until that point yeah, a lot of agitation and funding of the radicals yeah, the, the traditional us model of Freeing countries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're bringing you freedom by funding, you know, the most fascistic elements of your of your nation. We can. <laughs> Goddamn. Uh, not not a very nice note to end it on. Uh, we can. Well, the nice note is that <laughs> we're going to <laughs> start Yugoslav now at some point. <laughs> and we're, we're going to bring it bring it back <laughs> and fix it. <laughs> We might have to. We might have to. We're going to do a 10,000 10, um, NFT P2 
PFP project of Yugo cars, the famous cars of Yugoslavia, to fund the entire project. And then we can use it to fund research and writing about Yugoslavia and relate it to DAOs and then bring about Yugoslavia DAO again. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> But I've been, I don't know if you know um, Yugopnik. He's like a, a YouTuber who is like, I, th I think probably similar age as you or us, who is, I think like half Serbian, half uh, Bulgarian or something. I'm not really sure. But he does a lot of like socialist uh, video essays where he talks a lot about Yugoslavia uh, and about the history of Yugoslavia. So I think if we do this, I think we can get him on board to, to help with the project. Yugopnik. Yeah. Cool guy. Yeah, definitely. We'd love to connect with the, the weight of chains guy as well. But yeah, I need to talk some... There's actually yeah, a lot of uh, Yugo nostalgics here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I found out whenever we were hanging out in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's, that's a lighter note to end it on. I think that's good. I think we did a, did a nice journey in this, in this episode. Thank you for coming on. I think this was great. Yeah, thanks a lot. See ya. Bye.